Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. Uh, it's another day of self-isolation. If you can believe, I want to say we're up to 100 days so far. I'm starting to get a little complacent in the place in the fact that I'm just trying to come up with creative and fun ways to pass the time. So there is one person I know who is really, really good at finding ways to pass the time in creative and technological ways. And his name is Seth Robinson, principal lighting designer at Sightline Design Group. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today, Seth. Hey, Chris. Yeah, thank you. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I am, I am as well. I am about you know, a hundred days ago, I was really proud of myself that I was able to pivot from going out to reaching out to people in person and doing lunches and dinners and programming and all this stuff. And I was very proud of myself that I switched, that I was able to pivot the podcast and everything. But now even that 97 days into the podcast, I'm like, man, it's even now this is getting tiresome. And and I love all the interactions, everything, but it's the sitting in the same chair, the same thing every day. Oh my gosh. I thought yeah. maybe it would be fun to try something new. And I've been trying a couple of different things with the kids, but I thought it would be great to reach out to you to kind of figure out what it is that you're doing to keep your mind going and fresh and, mm-hmm. and, and pass the time. Cause I know you've got two kids as well. I believe you're in Nashville nowadays, right? Yes, I am. I actually grew up here, graduated from Cheatham County central high school in the middle of the woods. And wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was actually born in Los Angeles. I was born in Reseda, um, or born in Granada Hills. The hospital I was born was uh, destroyed in the earthquake, and we lived in Reseda at the time. But uh, my dad's a professional guitar player, and he toured with Dolly Parton back in the 1970s. And in, uh, was it 1978 or nine, we we decided to move to Nashville so that he could pursue a career in in, uh, country music, basically, and as a sideman. And we ended up in Kingston Springs, Tennessee. So we went through from like Reseda, which where Hell's Angels were having um, <laughs> crash up derbies on our street to Kingston Springs, where our nearest neighbor was a mile away. It was quite a change. Um, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, my experience uh, going through the, the school systems here was 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 different, <laughs> to say the least. How old were you when you moved? Four. Okay. Born in 74. Yeah. Got it. Just a little so bit. now you, you, you're still in the same place that you've lived for many years. What do you do to, what are you doing to pass the time? I mean, it's a, for lack of a better term, it's, we're all in semi, semi-retirement right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. My family, we don't do much anyway. Uh, so we're, we're pretty much homebodies and 
we live in a, a, a nice little neighborhood in Franklin, Tennessee. It's, it's an inexpensive area of the county, which is great because we have more diversity here and we have, uh, it's just more of a community atmosphere. Um, <clears throat> and we have an, an acre lawn, which gives us a lot of room to play. And I, I like to, I kind of like to go wherever my brain takes me. And maybe, uh, la well, two years ago, I was having some back trouble. I have a, a bulging disc and I've been fighting it for years. And I was stuck in bed for a couple weeks and I saw this video of somebody flying a, a, a drone, uh, but in a, in a style that's called freestyle. So it's completely non-automated. It's, it's just this crazy like hummingbird, um, what, what can I call it? I mean, it's almost like being in Star Wars uh, when you fly. And, and the, it just, it grabbed me in such a way that I knew like the moment that I saw this video, I was, I, it was almost like I mourned the loss of my spare time once I saw that video because I knew that there was nothing else in my life at that moment. <laughs> And uh, so I, I uh, immediately bought a radio and then I had to go to London for a um, architectural install uh, for like three weeks or something. So I took all of that with me and I just fl flew in the flight simulator on the computer. They have flight simulators for these drones. And I guess I should describe what that is. So it's, it's FPV, which stands for first person view. And the pilot puts on a set of goggles that resemble VR goggles, sorry. Uh -huh. And, uh, you look through a camera that's on the drone itself. And that is how you fly the quadcopter. It's, it's almost an out-of-body experience. It's definitely a transference of like um, your, your uh, awareness to this other physical space. And it's so incredibly engaging. I can go anywhere in, in my drone. And what I quickly realized is that it became an artistic expression that I could through sort of fancy flying and viewing things in the way I want to see them, uh, it gave me a new way of doing things that match music. Uh, you know, we, as lighting people, we don't get, really get to practice our trade when we're sitting at home, mm -mm. not so much. Um, so this was really a, an amazing way for me to listen to music and I don't know, just, just sort of satisfy that urge. And boy, is it fun. So anybody who isn't aware, basically you have the goggles on mm -hmm. and it's, you're getting real time feedback from your drone. Yeah. Uh, and up until recently it was an analog video signal. Uh, so it was really bad and okay. lots of interference and stuff. Now there is a, a digital system available that is actually really, really good. Uh, that gives you uh, low latency video feed from, from the drone as you fly. And it's all wireless, of course. So in your brain, you're in the drone. <laughs> there is, and for the listeners, you're, you're wearing a Superman shirt right now. And that's actually <laughs> a, an analogy I like to use because uh, there was a moment at about seven weeks for me where I forgot that I wasn't in the drone. Like uh, it was just an out of body experience. I have no other way of describing it, but I was above a tree and upside down and falling and it felt like I was flying over that tree upside down in my body. Uh, not that I, you know, I didn't get like the sensations of wind and stuff, but I was there. I wasn't in my body. I was not aware of my body at all. Uh, and this happens with some regularity and um, yeah, I like it a lot. <laughs> it's like a drug. So like the matrix, if you were to crash, if your drone crashes into a wall, do you crash into a wall? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it. 
I mean, if your drone falls from a tree, do you fall from a tree? I have had that feeling of falling before. Whoa. Yeah, you get like that. Whoa, gosh! And yeah, uh, one of the common tricks is to is to go to the top of a, a tall building, like say the Bat Building here in Nashville or something, which you're not technically supposed to do that, but people do it anyway. <laughs> and they'll, I haven't, uh, but they'll go to the top of the building and then just literally fly down the side of the building uh, at top speed, and it's it's amazing to watch and it is absolutely terrifying when it's you in the drone <laughs> flying you know a thousand feet straight down it's it's pretty crazy wow so are you listening to music while you're doing it as well or do you, are you adding the music later uh i i do it both ways okay um i when i listen to music and i fly i crash all the time <laughs> <laughs> and and I love to do it, uh, but but it's hard because you're you're trying to as, as somebody who who you know comes from from our world with with the timing and the the sort of the rhythm of, of music, and this is something that's just ingrained after years and years and years of pushing a go button. I want to match my moves to what's happening in the song, but that doesn't always correlate to like what's appropriate to do in the drone at that moment. So yeah, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll not have the right line in order to do something, but I'm going to do it anyway, just cause it's the right time to do it. And I end up crashing, but, uh, it is, um, when you get it right, uh, it's, there's, it's a certain kind of special feeling. This just sounds like a whole new level as opposed to the, the remote control cars that we had as kids. Uh, you know, even, even helicopters and stuff that uh, we used to fly with the RC, the, the drone stuff, it, it adds the, such a new element where you're, it's the point of view, it's the, the capabilities, it's the speed. Mm -hmm. and, and this is just something that you are able to do in, in the, as a hobby currently, right? Yeah. yeah. Even though there are a lot of people that are using this for professional purposes, right? There are. Uh, FPV is maybe a little less popular. Well, a lot less popular than just your standard line of sight drone work for film and, and, and such, but it does have its place and there are things you can't do any other way. The limitation is for the most part, um, you're stuck with GoPro as your recording device right. because it's lightweight and durable and so on and so forth. But yeah. there are, there are uh, strides being made toward being able to carry bigger cameras. And some people are doing that now professionally, but the performance is, is really tough to manage when you've got that kind of weight. Uh, flying around. I'm seeing a lot of people shifting from outdoor lighting to the drone shows. Is that something that you're testing the waters on? Or is that just, is this just a coincidence that you're into drones and drones are starting to take over the entertainment market? Definitely coincidence. Uh, I'm fascinated with the drone shows. I think they're really, really cool. Uh, but what brought me to this hobby was not that. Uh, what brought me to the hobby was the experience of flight and, and that I've always wanted to fly. Uh, unfortunately, my <laughs> wife was in the Coast Guard in Alaska and she's, she's forbidden me from ever flying a private plane. So I kind of, this is kind of it for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a great sidestep. You basically, well, if you're not gonna let me fly, I'm just going to become a virtual superman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's the range on something that the consumer market? Um, 
It varies, and and it's all it all depends on your management of uh, wireless frequencies and and antennas and types of transmitters and transmitter power and all those things, uh, uh, because you're stuck with these mainly analog transmission systems. Um, well, I take that back. There are digital transmission systems, but you're still stuck with these relatively low power transmission systems. It, just out of the box, most of them will do 500 feet. Okay. Um, if you want to get farther than that, or if you're trying to go beyond the visual line of sight with like a building between you or trees or, you know, really anything like that, uh, then it's, there's really an art to it. And a lot of thought has to go into planning on your, your sort of, where am I going to be flying? Where am I going to stand? What antenna do I need to use to make sure I get good reception there? Uh, that kind of stuff. So I would say that um, I'm starting to understand actually some of the, some of the art to wireless frequencies that audio professionals have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And it gives me a new <laughs> respect for, you know, whenever a microphone goes out. Uh, now I'm a little, I'm a, well, a lot more uh, understanding because it's just, a, it's a mess uh, keeping up with it. Oh man. Especially if yeah. you wanted to have three or four of your friends mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. The max is eight. And that's like, that's, that's like the limit. And that's really hard to get to, actually, because everything has to be done right. And everybody has to do everything right in order for that to work. Is that eight uh, people on one system or eight people on eight systems? Eight different drones flying simultaneously. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so... Independent systems. So you have to set up an antenna. And is the antenna in the controller or is it oh. in the drone? So... I know this. I is didn't mean to get too. I'm I'm I never realized we're totally straight, nerding out straight. here, but <laughs> I'm going to show you a couple things. I know it's not good for the podcast, but maybe we can describe what I'm showing you. So this is actually pretty small for anybody who's listening right now. Uh, what Seth is showing me is it's it's actually not anything that you couldn't put right, in so a suitcase. So what what he's got? It's nothing that you. I kind of had something much bigger in mind. I thought it was going to be like something you have to put in the bed of a truck or something and go out to the desert. But it's actually very yeah, small. It's just uh, a sewing station behind us pair of goggles so here are the goggles uh, uh -huh. and in here is the analog video receiver it's it a totally looks like a bubba fett style out from that you have two goggles. different antennas this is a diversity receiver so there's actually two 5.8 gigahertz uh video receivers in here no uh, top way. one's an omnidirectional microphone uh, microphone antenna and the bottom is also omnidirectional sometimes i'll replace this with a patch antenna to get more gain farther out but I wear this ridiculous thing on my face. Wow. Necessarily nerdy. But it works pretty good. There's built-in DVR on the goggles as well. And, uh, and they're designed to be comfortable to wear for extended periods of time. But that doesn't really come into play because we spend uh, anywhere from three to six minutes in the air. The batteries don't last any longer than that. Uh, okay. Because of the, the performance requirements of these things are so high to get the kind of performance it takes to fly expressively, you just chew through amps. Uh, here's a controller, standard RC radio. The interesting thing about mine is that this was custom painted by a friend of mine, Kerry Asmussen, who's a, a wonderful live video director that most of us have worked with, uh, mainly at like Coachella and the iTunes Music Festival and the Apple Music Festival. Um, and he does, uh, in his style, he does these uh, splatter paint things. So I sent it to him and then he live streamed himself painting it and yeah, so that's been that's been pretty awesome because I use this every day. And then finally, here's one of the drones. Uh, this is a five-inch uh, drone. It's designed to carry a GoPro. 
which this one has a GoPro Hero 7 on the front. Right below the GoPro, you can barely see it here, but there's a tiny little uh, analog. Effectively, it's a security camera, but it's tiny uh, right on the front there. And then all of the electronics are sort of integrated into the frame. And this is hand-built. Wow. Uh, the best ones are. So I know that anybody listening can't see it, but it's really, That's really kinda, small. Those are your three big components to FPV. Uh, and you know, the worst thing here is I took my headphones out, so I haven't heard a word you've said in the last. It's all good. <laughs> so I was, I was just kind of doing my very best to explain what you're showing me, which was, I was expecting something much larger. I was oh, thinking yeah. it was going to be uh, very uh, bulky, but uh, that was tiny. Yeah. Oh, let me show you. The, Basically, just enough of a frame to hold the camera. That's exactly it. You're, you're trying to keep the weight as low as possible, uh, but durability as mm -hmm. high as possible. And that's why the frames are made of cut carbon fiber sheets. Uh, and then everything's just sort of bolted together in the, in the most compact and rigid uh, uh, configuration. And yeah, because every, every gram matters for flight time, for performance. Um, you know, if, if it's lighter, you can carry a lighter battery, which makes it even lighter. You st when you think about things like SpaceX and rocket science, they always talk about how many pounds of fuel it requires to get one pound into space. Well, it's the same thing here, just on a smaller scale. And I have a <laughs> really, really tiny drone that I, I can show you. So stand by. Last, this is the last time okay. I'm going uh, I did not intend for this to, to turn into a drone episode, but uh, Seth is very excited. He can't hear us right now. He's off. He's, uh, he's just getting the smallest drone I've ever seen. It's basically, it looks like it's smaller than the palm of his hand. That's amazing. It looks this like a cricket. The one I fly in the front yard and I have the props off right now. But uh, yeah, this does everything the big one does, except it doesn't carry a GoPro. That's the only difference between this and the big one. Uh, everything but it else still has a camera. Smaller. Yeah, yeah, a little tiny thing right in the front. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love this thing so much. It's... This is, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's a part of me because I, I, I spend so much time inside it. So, yeah, <laughs> I know. I sound weird. Sorry, everybody. I'm a nerd. <laughs> no, that's, uh, <laughs> it's wonderful to be able to have something like that to geek out on. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's a lot of people that are so reliant on their job being our, our hobby because we love it so much. And right now you're, you're in a very... A uh, special position where you're home and you still have something that you can test your brain. It's still yeah. technologically uh, challenging, mm -hmm. something you can share with other people. You don't quite get applause at the end of the day, but I would, I got to, I got to spend a lot of time watching your YouTube videos, which are amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I will definitely left, I'll, I'll put a link to Seth's uh, YouTube video or his YouTube channel, which are full of great videos. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, yeah. I had to, I had to let go of something when I started that YouTube channel. Uh, I had to let go of the idea that everything I put out there has to be at like the professional level that I do for my job uh, and just start releasing things, even though I hate them because, and, and I, it's something I can talk about at length, but, but basically I just had to like swallow my pride and just put it out there because otherwise I was never going to do it. I was never going to be good enough to, uh, to release my stuff. So you can actually go in there and see a progression of the various things I've had to, to get good at over the last two years. 
um, because the hobby, it, it makes you do everything. Um, I had to learn and I already knew how to do some video editing, but like cutting the music is something I've never really had the opportunity to do. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, that was amazing. And learning, learning Premiere and then learning Final Cut after that, um, playing with After Effects, all those things were, were extremely wonderful uh, and fun, but there's just more roadblocks between like my starting point and being good at it. And the only way to yeah. get to that being good at it point is to do it badly forever. And, you know, it's something I've been trying to teach my son who's eight and he really wants to be um, a cartoonist. And he just keeps saying, oh, they're bad. I just want to do good ones. I'm like, Graham, they're always going to be bad. Yeah. There's never a point where you're not going to look at it and go, I want to do that better. And if you do get to that point, then you're done. And, uh, and I think that, you know, people say that a lot. That's, that's not an uncommon uh, philosophy and it's not an uncommon understanding to have. Uh, but it's something that I, as somebody who is often labeled as a genius, I really get sensitive to, to, to how I'm perceived. I hate mm. being called a genius. I hate it. I hate it when people say, oh, Seth can fix it. Oh, let's call Seth. He's the expert because it sets this expectation. And now if I don't deliver on that expectation, I'm not that thing. And I would much rather start from I'm not that thing. And then I surprise you with exceeding that expectation. So, uh, and this has happened to me a lot and I had to learn how to deal with it um, at work too. I'm, there's a, a lighting designer who's a very good friend of mine uh, who the, the first time I worked with him very quickly, he, he labeled me the genius. And every time I would be involved in a conversation with the client, it was like, oh, let's talk to the genius. And, and I, ha I hated it. And it made me miserable, the anxiety that produced. Um, so I eventually I spoke to him and I said, let's pick a different, <laughs> let's pick something else because it's not, it's not doing anybody any good to be thinking that about me when I may not be able to deliver what you're promising. Um, good for you for standing up. That's uh, a lot of people don't realize that that's it took a while. And that person if they he hears this, knows who he is and he knows that I adore him. And, and you know, <laughs> but that was definitely a, a period of growth for me. Yeah, uh, that's actually a really uh, important thing to say is that we're all just kind of putting ourselves out there yeah. live even. And if, if mm -hmm. somebody has, has these higher expectations, these unmeetable expectations, we're going to be the first ones to beat ourselves up about it. Not a lot of people are far more forgiving of us than we are. Yeah. It's so tough. If, if somebody else is going to try and label us as genius and we don't meet our own expectations. Mm -hmm. it's so tough to, to and then recover. No matter, that. no matter how good the result was, it was a failure. And that, oh. that I have to struggle with. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about when I'm, when I'm giving a presentation or talking to uh, newcomers or young people is uh, this idea that at least for me, and now for some people, it's not like this. Everybody approaches the world differently, but for me, expectation is the killer of creativity mm -hmm. because it forces me to be looking at the end result rather than the path. I'm like, this is what, this is the thing I'm going for. This is the thing, this is the thing. And, if, and every where nothing is ever the thing until you get there. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's that expectation always uh, makes me behave less creatively because I don't want to diverge from that expectation. And I'm so obsessed with trying to meet it that I don't. I would imagine you would, you would much rather be the person who exceeds expectations than the person who doesn't meet expectations. Always, then. 100%. Yeah. 
And that's, I mean, that's good advice for anybody in any job or any part yeah, of life. That's a great you know, metaphor. Don't, don't overpromise. Um, it just, it bugs me when people overpromise for me. <laughs> that's when I get, that's when I get really uncomfortable. Especially if somebody is going to call you a genius and then expect you to do something quickly. You, you would mm-hmm. have to come in mm-hmm. and explain like, no, I'm very thorough and good at what I do because it takes me a long time and I don't give up. Yeah. I'm obsessive. That yeah. I've accurately stated I'm obsessive and I won't let go of things until I find a solution. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you get frustrated when things don't come to you quickly or are you, are you totally cool with the process of how long things take for you sometimes? I've had to get better at that. Really? Sure. I know when I was a kid or a kid, you know, 15 years ago, um, I would, I would get really frustrated and I would give up on things. I wouldn't, I didn't finish projects. Uh, cause you get like, you hit your first roadblock and it's like, Oh, that's too hard. I'm, it's not, I'm not getting the result I want right now. Um, but I think it's part of maturing. It's part of becoming an adult. Like you, your right. brain develops and you're able to tolerate more frustration through more experience. You gain the ability to recognize, you know, Oh, this is a path. This is not, you know, this is not a switch I flip. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I have had to get better at that. And, and to that end, we can talk about FPV some more. When I decided to learn to fly, I did not understand exactly how difficult it was going to be. Like it's, you just can't explain it until somebody puts their hands on the gimbals and tries to fly the thing. It does uh-huh. not fly itself at all. And I had to build the neural pathways that allowed me to fly the quadcopter without thinking about it. And that takes time. There's no way to teach the brain to do things automatically without repetition. And unfortunately, if it's something that's hard, that's repetition of failure. And it's just fail after fail after fail after fail after fail until the brain goes, oh, wait a minute, if I do this, and then suddenly you're not crashing when you try that. And it's not that you, it's not that you're, you thought consciously, oh, I need to do this. It's that at some point your brain was like, oh, I got this for you. Don't worry. And and I like to compare it to learning to play a musical instrument because it's exactly the same process. It is. Uh, and this is why I have, my dad's a professional guitar player. I have tried five different times in my life to learn to play guitar and given up every time because I just wasn't interested enough mm-hmm. in it to push through that, that difficult period, that first year of just being terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't give me enough satisfaction on its own to, to keep me at it. And this, uh, similarly though, uh, requires the same amount of practice in order to continue to improve. And it, it, it held my interest. So here I am. And it's fun for me now because my dad and I have never really had, um, a, a place to meet on, on that level, like that, that sort of artist, um, and instrument relationship. Uh, he's still at 70, something years old, uh, he still practices between one and three hours a day on guitar. Wow. Every single day. He has to. Uh, and now I understand because I fly in my FPV simulator every night for a minimum of, a, of an hour. And if I don't, I feel bad. It's got to happen. And, and that's, that's like every day. That's my thing. And to have something like that is really amazing. It, it, it feels like I've, I actually, there's like more to me now than there was uh, before I discovered this. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. There's a little more Seth in the <laughs> world. In, in every way. <laughs> <laughs> I 
actually, no, I recently, I had to go to the doctor for a checkup and, and they weighed me. I was like, oh, here comes the COVID-30. And, uh, and it turned out I'm at my normal weight, which means still slightly overweight, <laughs> but it's not bad, not bad. And part of that is because we just stopped eating meat uh, pretty much, except for maybe once a week now. Congratulations. Yeah. What, uh, what led that? Was that uh, just a constant? Availability. I mean, they were limiting meat to like two, two items a, a week or, or a visit. And we were only going to the store. My wife was only going to the store once a week. So we just kind of, I don't know. We've always wanted to try vegetarian uh, diet. And we've always kind mm -hmm. of been dipping our toes in it. You know, a couple of days a week will be a vegetarian meal. And it's just been a lot easier with, you know, that that's the stuff that nobody wants to buy anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we eat a lot of lentils. Um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty and good. you maintained your weight. <laughs> Somehow. I think it's from being sedentary <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, my wife and I switched about two years ago. We did vegetarian first and now we're full vegan. And oh, wow. We're very happy. Uh, yeah, I reckon. In fact, our kids are, kids are vegetarian now and uh yeah we're very happy that uh, we don't miss it much at all so that's the thing that i think that i was that i thought i was going to miss most which i still get a little bit about it because we're not 100 mm -hmm. percent vegetarian but the thing i thought i was going to miss the most was that like that sear on a meat that that mm -hmm. flavor that you get from a sear but you can I get did that too. from other things yeah there's a lot of things I thought I was going to miss more than I do. And, uh, it was, I thought that was, I thought it was going to be the taste, but mm. I've, I've realized it's just salt and pepper. It's, it's <laughs> salt and pepper on, on everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we will definitely have to talk about that. I could go, we'll fill an hour if we start talking about, uh, about that. Oh yeah. Well, my wife is the one who's really led this charge. I've kind of let her take it over. Uh, but I have a lot of opinions on it, but as far as like the experience of finding the recipes and, and knowing which cookbooks are actually reasonable to use in daily life, um, that's all been her. She's done mm -hmm. all that research and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Same with my wife does all the cooking uh, mm -hmm. as well. I led the charge on the idea, but she, she definitely took it running from there and it's, uh, it's been that's quite great. Yeah, like I said, we got to completely switch. Uh, otherwise, I will go down uh, <laughs> yeah, quite yeah. a while. For I sure. just did a podcast on it and uh, with Andrew Kenley, and it went very well. Oh, cool. So, I'll have to check uh, it out. Yeah, uh, I will send it to you after this. So you were mentioning a sense of timing. Your dad has mm. a lot of musical talent. Did yeah. that... Did that come down to you? Did you get a, mu a sense of timing? You just didn't pick up the instrument? Did you, did you <laughs> put a console in front of you and that spoke to you more? That was kind of three Basically, questions in one there. but I can tell you exactly how it happened. Um, okay. I've always been, because of proximity to my dad, I've always been musical. Uh, we regularly had bluegrass get-togethers at our house when I was a kid. And I would mm. I'd pick up the upright and bass and just follow along. Or I would, I would sing harmony and that kind of stuff. Um, I was in my, my thing in high school was choir. Uh, and we had a show choir as well. I did all that. And then I, I went to college on a, um, uh, uh, scholarship for choral performance, uh, ended up getting into community theater and acting. Uh, and then that led to building sets and doing lighting. And I found myself spending way more time thinking about how to how to make some effect happen on stage than 
reading my lines and memorizing my lines. Um, and I, I ended up, um, I landed a, a lead role in the Christmas play at uh, MTSU here in Tennessee. Um, gosh, this was a million years ago. And I spent more time like building sets and hanging out and doing the crew stuff than I did on stage, like doing the thing I was ostensibly there to do. And I just realized, okay, it, it's, it's not, the, the being on stage performing thing is not the thing I'm actually, that's not getting me the thing that I want. What I want is to be able to problem solve. Okay. And to, to, I thrive on that sort of last second, um, uh, uh, just like I thrive on that instantaneous decision-making and, and having to, to, to just move and, and do. Uh, so I had all that musical background. I had the stage background um, and I was failing out of college. I wasn't going to classes. I was, <laughs> I, yeah, I was always terrible at school. Uh, I never, not always and not never, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> And I realized, okay, I need to take a semester off. I need to make some money and figure things out. So I asked my dad, I was like, do you know anybody who's hiring right now? Maybe I can be a backline guy. And he called around and a friend of his happened to know that the local very light shop here in Nashville was hiring because they just sent all of their shop staff out on the Reba McIntyre tour. This is 1996. Yeah. That'll clear a whole shop to put that. Yeah, <laughs> it did. And so I went into interview. I had prepared this one page resume that had all the plays I'd done and all the things that, you know, Oh, here I am. Here's my thing. And even had my picture on it. This was in the mid nineties. And uh, I handed it to the, the, the manager at the time, Arthur Smith, who ultimately became a, a very important mentor in my career. Uh, he didn't even look at it. Like I handed it to him and he, <laughs> he, he held eye contact with me while he crumpled it up in his hand <laughs> and then tossed it over his shoulder. And he leaned forward onto the desk and he said, <clears throat> are, you willing, are you willing to work? And I said, yes. And he said, go get your drug test. You start on Monday. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, <laughs> like he, he could care less. Like, like he just needed something. But he knew, I mean, we had, we had spoken and stuff, but, but I, it was that attitude of like, what you have done doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, that was an important lesson too. When I walked into that shop on that day, when I interviewed, they had a rack of 24 VL sixes running a test chase and someone may as well have handed me a sack of gold. <laughs> that was, it was the same kind of thing. I just, I looked at it. I knew what was going on. I spoke to my grandfather who was uh, dying at the time. And I, and it was actually the last time I spoke to him that day. And I told him, I think I found my career. Like I, I knew, like literally, I, I knew within 10 minutes that, that there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing that. And yeah, so I worked in the shop for uh, a while. I was, I was there from 96 to 2003, but constantly wanting to play with the consoles. I was always getting in trouble for like going and playing with a console when I was supposed to be fixing a smart repeater or a mm -hmm. VL5. And uh, one time Arthur came out and he, he reprimanded me for it. And he said, look, if you want to get this out during lunch, like have at it, take anything you want out of the shop, plug it in, make it work, do your thing. But 
uh, we need you to be doing like the thing you're here to do. Yeah. You got to change all these pins out to copper, get to it. <laughs> or, oh no. My first day I walk in my first day and I get to meet everybody. And then Bryce Balthrop, who was the shop manager at the time, uh, he comes over and he's like, all right, cowboy, uh, you see that pile of soccer pecs over there? I didn't know what soccer pecs was at the time, but I figured it out. Uh, it was about four feet high. He said, I want you to take that fluke meter and uh, test out all that soccer pecs because our uh, cable tester is broken. So that was my first day at Very Light was literally pinning out soccer pecs all day long. <laughs> and honestly, I loved it. Uh, it was, Nobody gave a shit about your musical timing at the time. But no, it like, nothing. Yeah, it had nothing to get, do with anything. Get in there and start sorting yeah. out that soccer pecs and, and yeah. lift it and uh, put it up there when it's fixed. <laughs> yeah, hang it on the rack. Tape so it I, up. I, I distinguish myself uh, as someone who could fix things. I've always been a problem solver, and, and I understood pretty quickly how the systems worked, and I understood pretty quickly like what were the common things that went wrong, and so I was able to very quickly help other people fix stuff and fix stuff myself. And, and that's how I kind of got my early exposure to lighting designers because I would – float to the top is like, oh, this is the guy that fixed the thing that made the show happen. This happened a lot, actually. And it was not not bragging, but but that was that was the thing that sort of kept me uh, uh, relevant uh, you know, on a crew. And then I got the opportunity, you know, you had little opportunities here and there, they'd send me out with a console and I'd run a show and, and good reports would come back. And um, I did, uh, when I went to uh, artisan training uh, with, uh, who taught that one? Lee? Lee Lawley? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I had uh, artisan training, we had this little like 30 second piece of a song that we had to build, you know, okay, program, you know, looks for this 30 second song, right? And everybody's got like, you know, 10 looks and it's like, doo -doo 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 -doo. oh yeah, that's great. And they all look great. And here I am, I had like 60 cues and all these like chases and things that I was running. And it was like this octopus thing to try to make the whole thing happen. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> but I like, I was hearing the music and for the first time I had the opportunity to like, here's this lighting rig and I can do something with it. And I want to do everything all the time. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I don't know. Um, I kept, kept at it. I kept getting opportunities to go do and, it wasn't until Barney the Purple Dinosaur that I really uh, started to refine like my, my, my skills as an operator where I was learning how to translate that, that sort of musical and rhythmic uh, 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 stuff that I'd been using in my young life mm -hmm. to what I was doing in this, in this new and sort of technical thing. And it was um, it was really satisfying to me. This was a, a show that was done to a track. So every right. day I got to like try it just a little bit differently. It removed all of the, the, um, the uh, external influences from my performance. Right. I was free to just focus on how, you know, what, what is the latency when I, when I hit the go button, like what's the latency between that and the actual activity on stage and, mm -hmm. and, you know, working to try to match that and trying to, to hit that 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 mold bump just perfect, so it looks like the music actually caused it. You know, um, hitting the confetti blast at just the right moment, so the confetti like comes down at just the right time. It's all these little things that I was trying to figure out and, and learn how to time out and make happen exactly the way that I saw them happening. And uh, 
Stan Crocker, who I've worked with for basically my whole career uh, off and on, uh, was looking for an LD for a uh, Lollapalooza in 2003. And I had been out on Barney several times at that point. And he, uh, he called up and we talked about it and, and we decided that it was probably a good idea for him to try to get me on that tour for a number of reasons. Um, so when he was talking to Perry Farrell, he, he described, he was like, okay, here's these two guys or, you know, I don't remember who the other people were who were in the running for it, but they had a lot of experience and da, 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 da. I had done a couple tours as an operator and I had shown that I had, you know, the talent, but I had been doing Barney and this was so important to Perry Farrell who said, Oh, Barney, like, that's like theater. That's perfect. So my, my relationship to Barney was actually what got me the job with Jane's addiction, uh, running lights and, <clears throat> like I would imagine there weren't as many complex chord changes in Barney as there were at, <laughs> no, at Jane's addiction. <laughs> no, I mean the most the, the most difficult thing about Barney was making sure that no kids got lost and separated from their parents at the end of the show when they all ran to the stage when the that's important. Was falling. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. is you, that's very important. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, Jane's was transformative for me because I was in a band. I mean, I was out at front of house doing my thing, but I was performing with Perry Farrell, Dave Navarro, mm -hmm. um, P Stephen Perkins, uh, Chris Cheney at the time. And I, you know, I know a lot of people will say, yeah, 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 replaceable, LD's replaceable once the show is programmed and stuff. And that's, that is true to an extent, but I also think that the same could be said for any, any side man in a band. Yeah. You know the music and if you can play, you can get up there and play the music. Uh, so, but, but but it really it was like this experience of like wow I am I am performing and I was getting that thing that I had not been getting, which is that satisfaction from having you know, hitting the button at just the right time and my timing was kind of what carried me along from that point that led to Sting and the reason that was given for for why they they wanted me over you know, somebody else was because of my timing. And, uh, and I guess that was really important to that band. And it's very important it was, to Sting. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what a great guy to work for. He was, he was absolutely lovely. That was a, a very, uh, very positive, very fun part of my life. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have been out there for three years with that, that band. And it was, it was good stuff. I had to get off the road to get married, but, uh, I loved it while I was able to do it. So I so guess the, yes, timing, timing and rhythm are extremely important for people program, people operating for music. Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Even Barney needs to require <laughs> yeah. solid timing. I, did. You I know? did. I know. I know. Yeah, it was, it was fun. So you came up from the shop and you, looks mm -hmm. like you did it the hard knocks way. You, I mean, you progressed a little bit by little bit and now mm -hmm. you're, you know, going from seeing your first rack of 24 VL6s to working with legends like Sting. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you kind of ran the full gamut there. So yeah, you know what it is to be a shop guy. So mm -hmm. as a designer, you can kind of relate to people in the shop. You can relate to the crew chiefs. You can relate to a little bit of everything, right? I can. It's a blessing and a curse. Yes, it is. Um, I am a people pleaser. It's me too. really hard for me to say no. Yep. If I do say no, uh, people who know me know to listen. Uh, but people who don't, don't. I'm not, uh, I'm not forceful oftentimes. 
And, and so that's something that I always have to work on. I always have to be cognizant of like, am I not standing my ground here because I don't care? Or am I not standing my ground here because I don't want a conflict? So that's something I have to, you know, I always have to be mindful of. And I, and I try to make people aware of that when I'm working with them. But to your, to your point, the, the difficulty comes for me when I start making choices because I know that uh, hanging seven lights on a truss is a pain in the ass, where hanging six light, lights on a truss is super elegant. I deal uh, with that battle all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's always something like that. Uh, but I have over the years, I've had to learn to like, just say, you know what? I know it's hard, but it's worth it. Uh, and, and you can see that. That's the um, curse side. Yeah. Well, it's, you can see that in the, the K-Rock shows, uh, the K-Rock Christmas shows, where we try to do something grand and fantastic. And then we have, you know, 18 LDs come in and try to clone to it uh, over the course of a weekend. And it's just miserable mm-hmm. for them. So I'm always, we're always trying to find that balance between like, what's going to be really awesome and what is the thing we want to do and what's going to be easy for the people who have to actually use it. And, and there is a balance to be maintained there. And sometimes we slide one way and sometimes the other, but having the understanding is definitely advantage an advantage in that, but it's a, it can be a disadvantage with the client. Uh, Cause I'm you know, likely to say no to things sometimes when I just know that I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to apologize for that. <laughs> I have a hard time walking that line as well where I can't tell if I'm just getting walked over because like, let's say we go to a new venue and two trusts need to be cut. Am I just letting those two trusts get cut because I don't want to, I don't want to battle for them or am I going to let those two trusses get cut because it's the, it's the right decision to make. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I I'm constantly battling my feelings on that one. Like, cause I hear stories about people that are much farther along the path than I am. And they're like, no, I am not cutting those two trusses because they are part of the show. Mm-hmm. And even though I know in my head that I'm the only one who's going to notice, is that enough grounds to stand up for those two trusses? That balance um, that's a tough one. I think it's the job that the job is, is looking at it and, and making the choice. Like, is this a creative decision or is it a technical decision? And which one, of, you know, is this, which is more important in this case and uh, having to weigh that, having to understand your artist and, mm-hmm. and your show. And, um, uh, early on for me, same thing. Uh, I can go back to a, a Christian tour I did way back and, and, uh, the crew chief was a, a friend of mine from the shop. I mean, we worked together every day and I was in the back lounge uh, one morning or something before load in or something. And, and we had been in the venue and it was just terrible. It was like some church and there was no rigging. And um, he's like, can we, can we just not put the floor pars out today? I just, and I'm like, well, why not? And he's like, oh, it's just so much work. And I was like, dude, like it's, it's like the only thing I've got left. And he's like, come on, man, I'm your friend. Oh. And at that moment it was like, aha. Cause that's when I understood that like, that's how, you know, if somebody's coming to me with something like that. I want to know why. And uh-huh. that, that led me to like, the first question is why, why are we doing this? And then like, well, is that more important than what we're being paid to do? 
which is put on the show, like which, you know, and yeah. try, to, try to get that balance. But like I said, I still struggle with it, but um, I, I think I've, I've gotten to the age now where it just my, my presence carries a weight mm. that it didn't when I was young er, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's easier for me to say, no, no, we're keeping that. Sorry. Um, yeah. The other time I find it presents itself a lot is when I submit a design and the vendor wants to change fixtures around when I know that there's money to be used to get exactly what the, the plot requires. Mm-hmm. Or if I know that it's going to make my life tougher and, you know, thanks to the, thanks to Grand MA and so many consoles for being able to clone these days, but I know that there's, there's going to be more time required. Do you find that it's, that you have to stand up more often to the vendors, the people that are supposed to be supporting you are like, no, that's, uh, that's not gonna, that's not a good replacement for this fixture. I, I have not. Now I, I try to maintain pretty, uh, pretty healthy relationships with vendors. I have like basically two that I work with and it's not the vendor, it's the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and You'll follow I'm them to any vendor? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. The reason is because what I've said to them is, look, we both have to make money. I'm not asking you to not make money on a job. So what I need to know is that if something is going to be overly expensive for you or if you're not going to make money on something, I need to know that mm-hmm. so I can use that in my decision-making process because it's a symbiotic relationship. I want them there next time. Right. I want them, you know... I, I hate pricing wars. I hate it when one vendor comes out and is like, oh, everything's, you know, basically free. Like it's not helping anybody except right. for their marketing. Yeah, we saw how that, <laughs> what happens to those companies. We have seen that over and over again. Yeah. Um, in a way, we're kind of starting to see that with design companies, but I won't go there. Um, but the, the, that relationship, having that understanding that like on the level, they need to be able to come to me when they need something. I need to be able to come to them when I need something. And I'll tell them up front, like, I need a favor on this one. But I don't on the next one. I need, I need it to be, you know, market value. Right. And as long as we're never over a fair market value, I'm, I'm okay with working with them to get to, to what, you know, what is mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, vendor substitutions can be a sore point. But as long as they're upfront about it and they say, this is what I've got mm-hmm. or, or this is what I have in LA, uh, I can get what you want, but I have to ship it in from New York. And that's going to, you know, all of my, any profit I would have made on the show goes to that shipping, right? Or I'm going to have to raise the price in order to make that happen. Like that's a conversation you have to have. That's logistics. It's, it's I mean, that, that's just a regular business negotiation or trying to figure out the most efficient way to make the project happen. So mm-hmm. I'm always open to substitutions. But sometimes you, you have to have a specific thing and that's just the way it is. And, and that's when you need that, that friendly relationship with them when you say, no, I really need you to, to take the hit on this one. Do you find yourself designing plots based on the inventory then? I actually really enjoy designing based on inventory. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the difference between 
having a Lego set to work with, or not a Lego set, but like having a big box of just random Legos mm -hmm. or designing a thing and then having to figure out what Legos you need for that. Right. I guess so much easier is just reaching the box and go, oh, ooh, okay, yeah, those will do that. That's, I need this. What do I have that does that? Oh, here, boom. So at the end of the day, it's just light. Right. The fixture, as long as I get the thing I'm looking for, the fixture doesn't matter. Um, as long as it satisfies the, you know, the basic commodity requirements for a lighting right. fixture. Uh, and honestly, in this day and age, except for, you know, some very, very small subset of manufacturers, you're just dealing in commodity products. If, if it's a, a profile with gobos and, you know, whatever, like they're all profiles of gobos and whatever. And the things that make them stand out are so, so minute. Mm -hmm. that um, really at, at, at the end of the day, reliability is the only thing I care about. Uh, as long as it's going to work, right? I know what I'm getting. So, so yeah, I actually, I love designing to, to uh, inventory as long as there's enough stuff to work with. So when you reach into the box of Legos and you see a bunch of red, you're like, well, today I'm doing, I'm building a firehouse. If you see a bunch of gray, you're like, well, today it's uh, there's a bunch of gray pieces in there. I'm building an elephant today. <laughs> Um, somewhat. I, the thing is, it always starts with like, there's always an initial idea. Like I'm not talking to the vendor until I already kind of know what I'm going for. So it, what, what happens is we'll, we'll all, I'll design the, the physical, uh, show. So whether that's trust, scenery, staging, whatever, I'll design the physical show with no lights on it with an understanding that, oh, I need a position here, I need a position here, and then the trusses go there, and then that gets manipulated until I have a thing that, like, with the house lights on, looks cool. And mm -hmm. then that's when I go to the vendor, because I already have an idea of what I need, and then I look at what they've got, and I can pretty quickly go, okay, I've got, you know, there's the profiles I need, there's the wash lights I need, uh, I need something small like a magic dot, okay, there it is, you know, I need this many strobes, they don't have enough strobes, da-da-da-da. Uh, and then, and then I can start to mix and match and go, well, actually I could do this and that would work. And then I'll have more money left over to get that and, and that kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's just a little bit of a, it's just a process really. But as far as like the, the inventory driving the creative direction, I would say that's not the case Got it. Uh, for me. It's okay. more the, I know what I need and I'm going to figure out how to, how to like take this and make it work. Dear requirements change when it's a, a broadcast show? Yes. Yeah. Same. Yes. Um, but not, not as much as you would think. Uh, it really depends on the kind of broadcast show. Okay. Uh, honestly, we treat every show like a broadcast now. We do. We have to. The day and <laughs> segue, uh, everything is for broadcast now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Stan Crocker and I have done, have done a couple of presentations now, one at LDI, one at NAM, uh, titled Everything is for Broadcast. And this is, it's a concept coming directly from our work, our long-term work on the Apple Music Festival when that was happening, and how each year, 30 days straight, 60 bands, live, live, both bands each day, um, we had to figure out how to produce like a top quality, high-level beautiful broadcast of these shows with zero rehearsal, almost no uh, uh, like prep work. We just had to provide a, a festival system that anyone from um, 
muse to Ludovico Ainaudi. Oh crap! I've, I've 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 picked an artist that I can't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what I mean. It's like the entire range from classical to uh, to hard rock to country to uh, just anything. Um, this lighting system had to be able to create something that was appropriate and also something people could clone to. Right. Also, so two different bands could clone to and with a 9 a.m. load in and uh, like a 9 p.m. show. Um, it was a big deal. And we had to find a lot of really uh, different ways of handling uh, that kind of show. One of the big things we did was we introduced the con well we introduced the concept of the lowest takes precedence merge, which I have been told uh, sort of developed out of conversations we were already having with uh, uh, Ambersphere in in, in uh, the UK and uh, with MA, and that is instead of you know your standard HTTP merge, which uh, and I don't want to get too technical, but this is an important part of like that that process and what happened. Um, mm -hmm. Your standard HTTP merge, you know, uh, guest comes in, they have a hog three, they plug in their artnet, and then they just run the show. You have no control. If you want to, if you need to be able to adjust levels for exposure, like you have to do that on their console, you got to set up inhibitives on their console or go through Q by Q and like, oh, that's wrong, or we need to bring that to whatever. Um, that just wasn't practical for us. We needed to be able to let them just run their show and then let us expose the show separately right. uh, and simultaneously. So the lowest takes precedence merge gave us that ability because on our side with the master console with the entire rig in it, we take in their, um, we ended up using uh, streaming ACN, but uh, we take in their, their DMX and we drive all of our, all of the parameters of every fixture in the system, we drive to full and then their, their thing lays in and then pulls it down to what they want. Interesting. Um, then, the, the benefit of that is that we still have inhibitive control because the lowest takes precedence. So now I can bring intensity channel down on this fixture and that's going to be the upper limit of that fixture, regardless of what they do. Uh, so having that ability, being able to attenuate the lighting show during the show was huge. So that is, that is actually one of the things we do differently for broadcast shows um, and, and primarily for, because when we're doing a broadcast, it's of somebody else's show typically. Uh, for that kind of show. I mean, we do other right. things like the, the CMT crossword shows we did for years and, and, and other stuff like that, which is all sort of one thing. And that's, that's a different thing. But this, this idea of like a live concert capture, that lowest takes precedence is amazing. And it means that you don't have to think about exposure while you're programming right. or running the show. You're just running your show. And then some other dude is downstairs. That's where I was. I was downstairs with uh, a high-end uh, OLED monitor sitting right next to the video controller, the shader. And the two of us were working side by side um, making choices like, oh, is that a camera thing or is that a lighting thing? And what we discovered was the cameras needed to be set and left alone. And then we could light to the cameras. And it changed everything because it was only, at that point, there was only one person worried about exposure on the entire production, and that was me. Nice. Uh, calling the spots. I had my fingers on the inhibitives and I would just sit there. I had three foot pedals to talk to my different people. Um, and I was, I was literally using both hands and both feet uh, to, uh, to basically, you know, sort of be the broadcast lighting director for the show. 
so that that position and and all of you know the techniques that we developed in order to handle uh, the incoming bands and to give them as much control as we could while also allowing us to 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 make sure the cameras saw it properly um, it was huge and it, uh, I have so much experience doing it now uh, and I really enjoy it but I don't I don't really get to do it all that much anymore because I'm doing other stuff so it's kind of you know it's kind of bittersweet right I'd like to be doing it but I do other stuff so I'm kind of not right now um, <laughs> and now of course in the current climate I don't I don't know what's I don't know what the future holds but yeah man so what a interesting little uh octopus style situation you had there know, where running the foot pedals and your hands and so everywhere good. oh my gosh they used to joke they're like yes that's over there and then all of a sudden this third hand comes out of his chest to like push the <laughs> <laughs> oh I used to for that show I used to run key like call spots and on my left, I was running all of the like house lighting, like the environment lighting, busking it, color and intensity and chases and stuff to match what was happening on stage. So I was just like all over the place and, and completely overworked. And that's what led to that concept of like, okay, we're just gonna split this out to its own position now, put me somewhere where I can sit and think and I'm not like getting bombarded with the, the base while I'm trying to think about things. So yeah, that was a, uh, it was innovative and and yeah. i don't want to i don't want to claim like hey i invented this thing but i certainly like independently worked out a lot of processes a uh -huh. lot of process for that that um that ended up working really well for us and that's important because one of the things that i don't know if you were going to get into this or not but i mean when you're saying everything is for broadcast it's true it's not and we're not even lighting just for the 16 yeah. professional cameras in the room anymore we're lighting for 20,000 iPhones and all that. It's a hundred percent. And that, and that is really, that's the point of that presentation is to say, look, you can use the same techniques that we're using for this, uh, you know, uh, international multi-million dollar uh, broadcast. You can use those same techniques to make sure that the people with the cell phones are getting great video so that when you're, when your artist is on the bus that night, like riding in the next gig, looking through Instagram, what they're seeing is looking amazing. And that's just good mm -hmm. for you, right? That's, that's just marketing. And as lighting designers, it's right now, our best marketing is happening on Instagram yeah. uh, and, and other social media, but for the most part, it's Instagram. And, and, and that's good because it, it stays relatively apolitical for the most part, which is, it allows us to, <laughs> to think about the creative stuff a little more. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, paying attention to how the camera sees is really important. And this concept uh, that I haven't really heard it stated this way before, but, but it's not an unusual concept, the concept of the image chain, which is thinking about light from one end to the other. So you start with the, the source and you work your, your way all the way to the eye. In theater or in you know, strictly live environments, that's a really short trip, mm -hmm. source, object, reflection, eye. There might be some haze in, in, in there, right? Mm -hmm. but that's it. So, so it's really easy to control. You see exactly what's happening. You have control of every element. But when you're talking about broadcast, you lose control of the entire middle part. Uh, and so understanding what that middle part is and knowing like who to talk to or knowing, knowing understanding what part is, is breaking when, when it doesn't look good is... I think as much a part of the job as understanding 
how to operate a console. So, you, you, you know, you start at the you start at the the source. It goes through the air to the object. It reflects back to a lens. Through the lens onto a sensor, uh, processing on the camera into the camera controllers goes for more processing than the video controller has even more control over what's happening. Uh, then ultimately it ends up in, in the, in the case of a live stream, it goes into encoding then distribution from CDN, then back and then ultimately to the, the, your computer or your phone or whatever. And then there's stuff happening there. Like is your monitor on your computer calibrated? We don't know. <laughs> and, and so it's emitted from whatever uh, monitor you're using. It reaches your eye. And, and then finally, you know, your brain interprets it. So every step in that chain can break. Any step in that chain can break and, or be miscalibrated uh, or, or, you know, just not mm -hmm. set up right. And, and it ruins the whole experience. So um, I spent a lot of time because I, you know, for years was sitting next to this video shader, uh, uh, Roger, uh, who's a dear friend of mine and we just would have conversations about it. And then and that's the thing I encourage newcomers to do is like find the people who are involved in your, your job, but maybe not directly and talk to them and, and get to know them and understand what they're doing because uh, they can actually make your life a lot easier. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And then finally is the, you have the, the test device you need in order to make sure things look good on social media. Uh, you have it in your pocket. Yep. And I know a lot of, I know younger LDs, I think some of them have already figured this out on their own, but uh, those of us who didn't start with cell phones, maybe they haven't thought about this, but if you, if you just hold your phone up and look, <laughs> it's, it's really easy to see what's working and what's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm one of the ones I used to hate the person who was holding the iPad in the audience. Oh and now <laughs> during a show, I'm all too often. I find myself looking over at the iPad to see, like, oh. <laughs> So it does look pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's awesome. Yeah. I like to, if I'm standing and setting my key light, I will, I will get my phone out every time and just hold it, hold it between me and the camera, between me and the front of house camera and then take a picture or, or, you know, face the screen toward me and just look and make sure, am I getting the catch light in my eyes? Do they glimmer? Do I have any weird shadows? You know, mm -hmm. is the backlight too hot? That kind of stuff. And it's really easy to check that now. Uh, and if it looks good, it is good. And that's the, you know, this is art, right? For mm -hmm. music, there is no standard like, oh, it must be this many foot candles and it must be this type of light from this angle and, and so on and so forth. That applies in some situations, but, but now with, because uh, professional cameras have gotten so good and because the phones have gotten so good yeah. at, at, at dynamic range, we have a lot more leeway now. And so all of those rules, while they still, they're relevant, they don't, but they don't necessarily apply. So you're sort of understanding the, the traditional rules of key light is, is important to, you know, to know why, but, but at the end of the day, if the song asks for a strong backlight and no front light and this complete silhouette look, well, that's the right thing. Even though the camera yep. can't see the singer's lips, it's, that's the right thing. It, it brings, it's the emotional component. It's the performance component. And so learning all of this technical crap and going through all of this stuff, developing all of this process at the end of the day is for me uh, just a means to an end to be able to evoke the same feeling, the same emotion that I get in a live experience, trying to capture as much as that, of that as I can for the screen. I like to use the moles a lot as, a, as an mm -hmm. example because you can feel 
moles. You can feel the infrared heat coming off of them. I, I hate it, but I don't like LED moles. Uh, I need to feel the moles. Like that is a thing. And, and it's like fire, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's visceral. And, um, and there's something they do to your retina. It's like, it's just, I don't know, you feel it, you experience mm -hmm. it rather than see it. And, yeah. um, and so trying to capture that on, on TV was always hard, but now having the conversation with the, the shader, I can say, okay, leave everything alone. This is, we're exposed to, you know, whatever F3.2, whatever. Um, but don't, don't try to, don't try to open cameras up to catch audience or any of that stuff. You tell me when you need light. Uh, and that way, when they cut to the wide shot and the LD or, or me or whoever hits that big audience look, everything just blooms out, this big mm -hmm. white image, and then it comes down. And that, that is, you know, that's as close as you can get on a screen to what it feels like to be there in real life. So oh, all of that technical point. is just to make sure you get that, that moment. That is the core of what we're trying to do, right? We're just trying to mm -hmm. amplify the message, amplify the emotions that's happening on stage to the audience. And now to every single screen that, that they're going to view it on. Yeah. So it, it's kind of amplified our job that much more. No, for sure. For sure. It's extremely important now. Seth, we have gone totally over time because I've been really <laughs> enjoying this conversation. Yeah, but there is too. one question that I had to get to. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of my audience wanted me to ask, what are your unique philosophies on symmetry? I've heard from a couple of people that I've already talked to that they have heard that you're kind of a stickler for symmetry. Some people say mm -hmm. that, you, you, that you break out of it every once in a while. Where do you, where do you stand on a perfectly symmetrical set mm -hmm and look i think if something is designed as symmetrical it should be hung symmetrically i'm a stickler about that okay if i have if i have a truss if i have a front truss and it's got six eight lights on it nobody's ever seen that before right mm -hmm. um if those six eight lights don't aren't perfectly in alignment and pointed exactly the same way it's going to drive me crazy because it looks lazy right? It's obvious mm -hmm. that it's wrong. Right. So it has to be fixed. But for me, it's, it's, it isn't actually about symmetry. It's about balance. Um, and, and the okay. balance is the part that I, I struggle with uh, symptoms of OCD. I always have, um, as a kid, it was pretty, pretty rough. Uh, and I guess it wasn't strong enough and I was able to get through it and, and sort of live my life. But, but I still like, I still have that like underlying nagging, something's wrong, something's not balanced. And, that, and that's when I iterate through a design, I, I have to just keep working until it feels right. Okay. Um, but even in asymmetry, there is balance. Uh, we used to, and it's interesting because I guess I haven't programmed a tour in a while, but one of the first things I would always do when I was programming a tour is I would build three perfectly balanced asymmetrical focuses. Okay. And by asymmetrical, I mean, bleh, bleh, you know, these just everything splayed in every direction, but that, that actually takes a lot of work to yeah. dial in, right? It does check it from multiple angles to make sure that, well, that looks right from the front, you know, and they're doing all this, but then, but then when you go to the side, everything's basically pointing in the same direction. It looks like crap. So, so those are really, really hard to, to develop and, and maintain day to day when trim heights are changing and whatever. So I used to spend more time on asymmetrical looks than anything else, but they're also the most satisfying 
because it's not just a straight line. It's not just one of my least favorite things is like X's when you just take every other light and just X them over each other. Like it's, I know we all do it. I do it too, but I hate it because it's just, I, I don't want to, no, it's lazy. It's just lazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but the asymmetrical looks require a lot of thought and a lot of care. Uh, and when you bring one of those up at the right moment in the show, when it's that quiet moment with just the, the singer, the microphone and a backlight, it's, it's so you're focusing it. on balance and yeah. uh, balance. as long as it's pleasing to the eye, I would mm -hmm. imagine it's the, it's the ACL fans that have the fifth one kicked up just a little bit. Yep. Those are the I, ones you're like, that's a mistake. I'm the guy who sends the guy up 20 minutes before the show to fix that. That's yeah. Because that's what we're there to that's do. That's what we do. That's yeah. our job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I always feel bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I have to make that choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess a lot of what I have done, I, I would say that the, the actual lighting rigs themselves are typically very symmetrical um, because they're festivals. Right. And uh, guest LDs need symmetry for cloning. It's just, you know, I've done some, even with symmetrical rigs, I've done some rigs that were really difficult to clone to. Uh, and, and I know that uh, at least a couple of people have been on this podcast with uh, raise their hands. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, my response to that is um, I'm tasked with building a show that works for everybody Mm -hmm. that doesn't single anybody out and make them look better or worse. You know, sometimes I'm, sometimes I have orders like, you know, we have to have this because we have this band, right. Uh, you know, Oh, muse is closing and, and they need this for their show. And I'm like, I'll, I'll go through my list. I'm like, well, I'm a fan, so I'm inclined to do it, but is it going <laughs> to hurt anybody? Right. And sometimes it does. Sometimes the thing that I'm required to do is, is detrimental to the show as a whole, but I try to get around it. But also what I'm getting at is, is that um, even if a rig is not like super easy to clone to the, the guest LDs still manage to get a good show. And when it's an artist that doesn't have an LD and they're using our programming, which we had, you know, um, we had several hours to do the night before or whatever. So we've had more time and, and, you know, our, our programmers got their own busking page. It's already been dialed in and previews and all that stuff. Well, now look, the quality of the light show is actually going to stay pretty even because we're, you know, in a way we're sort of dragging down the people who are prepared and, and raising ourselves up by, because we have more time. <laughs> that's not the intent, but that ultimately that's the, that's the result. And I'm okay with that result. You're so uh, communal. <laughs> Uh, well, as a, as a festival lighting designer, our job is to design something that allows other people to be creative. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's definitely an art because it doesn't, you, you don't get to do the, the crazy fun thing. You mm -hmm. have to have a front truss. Well, you don't have to have a front truss actually, but you have okay. to have something, you know, you have right. to have like a standard set of fixtures and a standard set of trusses just to allow people to, to do their jobs. Uh, and then figuring out how to do that in a way that doesn't just look like three sticks is, is really hard at times. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I, you know, we've had some real successes. Uh, I'm talking about the K Rock Christmas show mainly because that's the one that's the one I really get to sink my teeth into every year for just because it's so liberal in in what we can do. Right. Uh, and we've been following this theme of like um, one year we did a big Christmas tree out of trust. Another year we did a big snowflake. Last year we did these like tree things that were uh, pixel mapped and, right. and that was a ton of fun. And, and um, yeah, but <laughs> LDs do not waste time telling me I suck. <laughs> <laughs> They're all friends. <laughs> uh, hey, Seth, we love you, but you yeah, suck. man. Seriously. I wanted to stay on the bus today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, how about you give us a fruitcake next year, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's one last thing I should mention uh, on that. On yeah, in, Please. Yeah. And it is uh, on March 14, a lot of us realized we weren't going to have a lot to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, Jackson Gallagher and uh, Sooner and uh, uh, Stuart Burke and uh, uh, Devin, I'm sorry, Devin, I don't have your last name in front of me. I'm really sorry. Uh, and, and just a whole list of others who are going to be upset because I didn't mention their names now, um, decided to start a charity uh, organization, charitable organization in order to support uh, people in our in industry who are unable to earn income right now. And uh, it's called Live From Nowhere. And we've been working on it hard since uh, March 14th. Got a bunch of episodes up now. And it's really interesting to people in our space because they're, it, where we're leaning right now is toward getting artists and their techs together to talk about that relationship, like guitar tech and, and guitar player or drum tech and drum player, drummer, drum player. <laughs> um, and, and that's really been, uh, it's really been engaging. And certainly during that early time period, where we're all like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We had something to focus on and having something to focus on to obsess about, like, it just gives you purpose. It, it allows you then mm -hmm. to, to feel like, oh, you know what? I'm not just sitting around doing nothing. I, I am adding value to the world. So uh, if you get the chance, if you still have money, I know most of us don't know, but if you still have money, we'd love to, to see your donations because we'd love to get those out to uh, people who are, who are struggling right now. I will put a link to livefromnowhere.org in yes, the notes. Thank you. thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, I feel like we didn't get to about half the things we were supposed to talk about, but maybe yeah. we'll have to set up a part two. That'd be amazing. I would love that. I'd like that. Thanks, Seth. All right. Thank you, Chris. Have a good afternoon.